0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Dr. Samuel Moyne of Yale University to discuss his new book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. Building on his earlier published works, Dr. Moyne discusses the ways that human rights shifted from a concern with egalitarianism to providing protection exclusively for the indigent. This has left human rights on the sidelines as wealth inequality has increased around the world. Dr. Moyne, welcome back to the New Books Network. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for viewers who might not remember you from previous appearances. Well, to begin with, thanks for having me. Um,
1: I'm uh, uh, a professor of law and history at Yale University. I've, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and I've uh, been part of the you know, academy for 20 years now, teaching at various schools. Where did you do your graduate work I I went to um, I'm from Missouri and I went to college there and and then I went out to California and I did my Ph.D. in history at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, After that, I went to Harvard Law School and then taught at Columbia and Harvard before uh, ending up at Yale last year.
0: So I know you've you've been with New, New Books Network previously. Um tell us a little bit about your earlier work and sort of interested in tracing what lead what led you up to Not Enough. Sure. Um I uh specialized as a
1: historian in in modern European thought and so my first books were in that domain. I I did a dissertation which became a book um about um moral philosophy in between World War 1 and 2 in France and Germany sort of about The relationship between existentialism and ethics and I also did some work on um, the memory of the Holocaust Um, but about 10 years ago um, actually exactly 10 years ago I had a a sabbatical in 2008 9 and I decided sort of as as a lark to write a book um, about how to think about where human rights came from kind of the debate about that topic was just heating up at that time and um, I spent the year writing uh, what became a book called The Last Utopia, which, um, you know, kind of was intended for me as a detour, but ended up being the kind of main road of my career since and uh, had has have been involved in lots of debates. This book, Not Enough, was originally intended to be a sequel to The Last Utopia, but ended up being a kind of rewrite Um 10 years on in a different world ourselves than, than, you know, than when I first started thinking about this topic.
0: And what prompted that impulse towards a rewrite? Well, I think
1: two things, you know, in the first place, I was sensitized to some of the limitations of, of my earlier work, but also I think the world changed. So in the 1990s thinking about human rights and where they came from from were really a referendum, um, on, you might say liberal internationalism in especially us foreign policy. Um, the idea that after 1989, um, we'd kind of ended up with an answer and all that remained was to get recalcitrant States that might be killing their own people or otherwise violating their rights into line. Um, and, uh, I think the world is just a different place now, especially since the the kind of unfolding effects of the financial crisis of that same moment when I was writing. And so the first book on the, that I wrote, The Last Utopia, um, really didn't engage much with issues of um, distribution, um, who gets what, and especially with um, inequality, how unequal our societies have been becoming lately. And so I decided I would kind of rewrite um, my history of human rights to take account of those two big topics, distribution and inequality.
0: Let's start with this book. Um, I want to start really with chapter one. And in many ways, you you pick up the thread of this book, which is understanding human rights and economics uh, with the French Revolution. That's sort of where it begins. So walk us through a little bit of that. So really, the, the
1: book is built on uh, around a, a fundamental contrast between um, the era of the welfare state um, and the the era of neoliberal um, economics in our time. And as I read around, I was struck by the fact that the very moment when human rights became politically significant in especially the French Revolution could also be seen as um the the birth of the welfare state and so i look in the first chapter of not enough at the way in which not only um in 1793 did french revolutionaries propound the first economic and social rights um that we know about those are rights to public relief um and 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 education um, but they also wanted to do something else, which was to constrain the vast inequalities in class that the you know old regime had created and that the first few years of the French Revolution had done nothing to disturb. So I developed this theory that welfare states um, were about economic and social rights, um, but they weren't just about... Co- Let's say bringing the bottom up in society, but also keeping the top down. Um, And so they were committed, as I say in the book, to kind of twin ideals. One um, I call sufficiency, the idea that everyone should get enough of the good things in life. But there's this other ideal that the Jacobins and later in the 20th century welfare states institutionalized um, equality. It matters not just how poor the poor are, but how rich the rich are.
0: It's interesting. um, And this is something I I hear from conservative critics frequently is that, um, you know, yes, inequality has surged globally. Nobody's really arguing with this basic point anymore. Their contention now is that it doesn't really matter. In effect, a rising tide will lift all boats. And even if the poor aren't necessarily catching up towards equality with the wealthy, they're still better off. So, so why isn't equality such a problem then? Well, that's, it's, I, I, I think that's
1: a really tough one. Um, and it's fair for them to make that you know, point and ask that question. Um, you know, the really hard thing is that um, unlike 19th century capitalism, where there was kind of widespread misery and the state did nothing to help the worst off, Um, we tend to think that um, inequality might be okay, if in fact, the worst off are helped by it, um, or, you know, somehow getting, getting, getting better off, even if inequality surges. Um, So I think, you know, this is not exactly um, a historical question. It's a philosophical question. And, and my goal is, is, is more to kind of record how many people embraced the proposition that equality matters too, even if um, the poor are getting better off um, where, are we're some of the people in history who um, unlike for much of, of modern history really are tempted to say inequality doesn't matter, especially if the poor are better off now. I can give some, you know, some suggestion about why um, why inequality is 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 morally objectionable, even if um, people get sufficient provision of necessary goods and services. You know, basically, it's it's still hierarchical. Um, I don't think people want to live in hierarchy, even if being at the bottom of the hierarchy. Means they're not destitute. Um, if people were setting up a, an ideal society in advance of knowing where they might occupy it, um, it's not clear to me they would say it, it's okay for there to be these vast hierarchies. And the way I dramatize that um, is by imagining in the epilogue of the book a world in which one man owned everything and and was so generous that he made sure all of his serfs on his global estate didn't starve, had health care, even paid vacation. Um, and the suggestion is that people would revolt against this man because it's not fair to live in that kind of hierarchy. Now, in the real world, outside this thought experiment, we know that um, those who have wealth Um, to the extremes um, that they do today relative to the rest, um, tend to buy their way um, out of um, providing basic human rights, including economic and social rights for their fellow citizens and humans. Some of them are philanthropic, Bill Gates and so forth, but many of them have spent their time doing doing their best to buy off um the the democratic outcomes so that's 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 a reason why, even if you think that a rising tide lifts all boats, you might worry then that when wealth becomes so extreme um that it can have baleful effects um on on people's you know entitlements and livelihood mm.
0: so then so much of the crux of this book is built around the welfare state, which you then you have these very tangible examples to draw on from the middle of the 20th century. Where does the welfare state come from and, and what are the impulses you track, especially in the second chapter?
1: so the, the the welfare state after the Jacobins you know kind of dreamed it up for in the first place um, was institutionalized slowly and in different forms depending on where you look. Uh, you know famously the first, Welfare legislation comes out of Germany under Otto von Bismarck. And um, it's really um, part of his anti-socialist campaigns and is not markedly egalitarian. Um, But when you get to the 20th century, you find that across the political spectrum from right to left, um, the egalitarian welfare state, um, partly rhetorically, but also in, in terms of real outcomes, does a lot of work to um create a a a unified um society so there aren't like two tracks the rich the rich and the rest um you know one of the scariest things is how much the far right contributed to this agenda Um, adolf hitler was one of the great proponents of the welfare state at least once he got done excluding all of his racial enemies from it um but for the german people um he, you know, quadrupled corporate taxation and, you know, did a lot to, you know, both through direct state spending and, and through all kinds of, of other devices to um, make German society more equal. On the far left, um, by this point in the 20th century, although Karl Marx actually didn't talk that much about the value of um, distributional equality, communists um, championed it. Um, to the point that um, Joseph Stalin actually had to warn his people not to get too excited about equality he was he was committed to leveling classes, but they shouldn't think that he could get too far too fast. The most interesting cases, of course, are the the liberal democratic cases um, and famously, those kind of um, come in different forms in Western Europe. There's social democracy um, under the auspices of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom and and in Scandinavia even before and much more you know thoroughly and then we can argue about how the American New Deal fits on the continent. Um, there's Christian democracy, which is a kind of neo-Bismarckian, um, more Christianizing um, right-wing form of. Um, wealth, welfare ideology. And there too, there's some concern for constraining inequality. We now know that the period when these welfare states surge um, in the middle of the 20th century is one where class inequality is, is constrained like um, never before or since. So the rich and the rest live together in the same society, you might say most um, in the middle of the 20th century, where um, inequality in the 19th century and in the 21st have been allowed to surge.
0: So this would be a good place, I think, to discuss uh, Piketty's influence on what you've done here, because um, you know what so much of what he's looking at is this sort of crunch that takes place on the highest earners in society in part because of the war. And so how much of of what's shaping this intellectual influence you're seeing complemented by a sort of structural factor going on from the outside, so to speak? Um, I would say, um,
1: you know, Piketty's book certainly sensitized uh, the mainstream to the significance of inequality. And he sort of did two things. One was to gather better data on certain societies, especially France and the United States, um, to, sh- to prove to those who were skeptical that in fact inequality has increased since the 1970s um, in those places. Um, and then he offered a kind of theory of how to explain um, inequality. And I guess I would say um, I'm, I'm happy he sensitized the mainstream about the acceleration of inequality, but I'm more skeptical of his theory on a, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that he, he basically works like Karl Marx before him with some, a concept of something called capitalism, which seems to be a take it or leave it system with, with laws um, and the, you know, the main law that he propounds um, suggests that inequality is, it, it has to increase under capitalism. Um, now that leaves him with this puzzle that his own data proves that it decreased between the 30s and the 1970s. Um, and so he has to treat this as kind of an aberration in the system, um, like somehow the laws of nature um, that he's propounding don't obtain them. Um, so he goes on to solve that problem by, by actually pointing a fair bit to the war in one place, both world wars and saying capital destruction, um, which is kind of like this you know, um, deus ex machina um, affected things. Elsewhere, he I think he's on firmer ground and saying, "Look, there there was political change and a lot of people got together and changed policy, um, whether it was in the domain of antitrust or tax or what you know all all, all of the domains of social policy." Um, and this suggests that it, kind of his premise was wrong, um, uh, because it turns out that you know, the economy is what we decide to make it and it has the outcomes we build into it. Um, and so in the 19th century in our time, rather than thinking there's some like take it or leave it system called capitalism, um, it's just that policymakers, um, created a form of, of markets, uh, that, um, drove higher and higher inequality. And in the middle of the 20th century, big social movements, um, you know, changed changed policy. Um, Now, the war clearly had a lot to do with that because the war in the first place convinced people that they were part of the same society. Um, Its biggest effect was, if you like, on nationalism to convince people that, you know, they were all Britons or they were all Frenchmen um, and that they needed to have states that recognized that they're, they 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 everyone's in the same boat, rather than allowing the rich to secede. So I, I wanted to tell a story about the middle of the 20th century that totally um, agrees with Piketty about the shift, then, um, but disagrees with him that somehow it was an aberration um, in a kind of exception to like the the general. Um, laws of capitalism, um, and then looked more carefully at the way um, in which ideologies and movements and not just like the war as this external deus ex machina, cause people to change um, the way that they produce and exchange and distribute, um, leading to
0: more equal societies across the board. Mm. So I wanted to pivot a little bit because you brought up uh, the United States briefly and you know, the United States is such an interesting example in this period because it's sort of a, not quite a counterexample to our Western yes. European counterparts, but it's, it's a weaker sort of example yes. of this welfare state. It's always more contingent. It's always yes. more limited. Yes. Go really into that in your third chapter. What accounts for some of that? What, what's What, what, what does that moment look like in the United States instead of say Britain? Great. So, I think we have to first decide what
1: was unique about it. Um, so, I mean, it, it fits totally with with Piketty and other um, evidence that um, the middle of the twentieth century saw a relative equalization. I mean, the United States participates in that, and it participates in some of the policy changes um, I talked about before, like the rise of, um, you know, intrusive antitrust policy, um, much higher taxation um, than uh, existed in the 19th or the 21st centuries. And yet, we also can say that basic entitlements, um, to take a famous case, healthcare, didn't get institutionalized in the United States. And whatever equality was created um, in the United States proved easiest to erode And that actually had big consequences for the world because once the United States began to turn um, away from the welfare state towards a more neoliberal arrangement, of course, it's powerful enough on its own and through um, these uh, global institutions like the World Bank that it partly controls to influence decision-making in lots of other countries. Um, And so, the puzzle I wanted to take up is how we account for, in a sense, how far the United States got without um, without forgetting that it 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 didn't get very far relative to West European examples and that its achievements proved much easier to erode um, in the 1970s and 80s with big, fateful consequences for the whole world. So I look especially since I'm trying to do a history of human rights at the circumstances in World War II during which Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal president, um, gave a State of the Union address in 1944, his second to last before uh, dying, that promised a second Bill of Rights, like a new Bill of Rights that the first 10 amendments to the Constitution didn't cover, And this new Bill of Rights would be the rights from the French Revolution on that were more about economic and social um, entitlements, things like the right to work, um, understood in the regular sense of the entitlement to a job rather than in the American trade union busting sense of our time, Um, right to health, right to food, and so forth. Um, And... The, the fact is that um, what seems to have happened is, is that um, America adopted some really unusual arrangements during the war to fight it. Um, it's called the war economy, and it was a huge boon to America's uh, wealth. Uh, I think GDP doubled in just a few years um, when the government owned a quarter of the factories to produce armaments and all the other stuff the war required and had a, a big, you know, bureaucracy directing the rest of the government, uh, the rest of the economy that it didn't own, um, how to produce. And um, I think this is in part of the reason um, why America got so far, but then it shifted. Um, as the war wound down, um, a big decision was made to privatize industry, which didn't happen, um, at any rate, as rapidly in in Western Europe, um, where the government continu- continued to be a planning state. Um, and so, I, I look in detail at at these kind of these events in World War II because it seems like this could be a moment when the United States in a sense, steps off the path of the welfare state already. um, And it could have been different. Um, Now we can debate whether actually the pivotal moment takes place before, maybe as far back as the early 20th century, when America didn't get socialist parties like the rest of the developed world. Or maybe it happened later, because people talk about how the dream of the welfare state was still alive into the 50s and 60s in progressive circles in the united states i would say a big factor though it's not the only one is that the united states didn't suffer war on its territory during world war ii um it did get bombed in one of its you know old colonial holdings um and fight over in others in the pacific um and uh, and yet its homeland, as we call it today, was basically safe, whereas in Europe, these are places where, um, obviously, in Britain and in continental Europe, and especially further east, the war devastated the landscape and the people, and in a sense, drove them into one another's arms um, in experiences of of solidarity that Americans in a sense didn't get, get to, get to have. And, and maybe that's the biggest reason why Americans created a warfare state in the forties rather than a true welfare state.
0: Hmm. So then in your fourth chapter, it, the, the gears shift to a certain extent, Europe is still a part of it, but it's in terms of Europe's initial relationship with its, with its global South colonies and how they understand this, this welfare turn. So what's going on in Africa, in, in Asia, these places that are still nominally under European domination, but that domination is withering?
1: After. Absolutely. So, so if the first part of the book explores the, the welfare state um, in its origins and in, uh, in, in, in this American kind of exceptional... Uh, situation The second part of the book, starting in chapter four, is about the rest of the world, because after all, the most famous welfare states, like the United Kingdom, were also the biggest empires. Um, and it 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 seems as if I mean we can debate how these two facts are connected, but um, in 1945, at the end of World War II. Um, there are lots of people in, across the transatlantic who think that welfare states are for whites um, and not for the world. And so the, the, the middle part of the book explores the way in which decolonization changed the equation in two respects. So for one thing, um, even though there was a notion that there would be welfare empires before anyone ever coined the term welfare state. Um, Post-colonial movements sort of said that it was, it was that they didn't want to remain an empire and they wanted to set up their own welfare states. Um, And what I try to show is that when we look at, especially African um, post-colonial leaders, people like Kwame and Nkrumah, they talked even more about equality than um, had been the case in the original welfare states, from the Jacobins and the French Revolution to the middle of the twentieth century across the Atlantic. It's not that they didn't care about, um, you know, economic and social rights understood as the base, provi- basic provision of the most, you know, critical goods and services, but they they embraced even more um, fervently, the idea that it was important for citizens to be on equal footing and not to have, you know, uh, two societies, the rich and the rest. But then as they got going, uh, the post-colonial leaders, in a sense, get even more ambitious because that first Dream that I've been discussing is really about transplanting the welfare state that Westerners built around the world in a series of national boxes. But then, you know, in part because they were failing to do so, um, the post-colonial leaders said they also needed to raise the the welfare state to the level of the world. And so I trace how a certain number of proposals get put on the table to create. Um, what Gunnar Myrdal, the famous Swedish economist of that era, called welfare world. Um, This comes to a head in the 1970s, when in the midst of um, an economic crisis in the developed countries, the post-colonial countries, um, in a sense, have have a, a, a day at the United Nations, their own May Day, May 1st, 1974, where they propose something called the new international economic order. And their basic argument is that um, because of the history of colonialism and the, you know, continuing global inequality um, there should be um, there should be some plan to make the world more equal. Um, I'll just mention that, you know, that, one of, one of the paradoxes um, is that even as many countries are getting more equal after World War II, especially in the global north, the distance between the wealthy and the poor countries at the level of the world got worse and worse. And so by the 1970s, the global south is quite angry because it's engaged in this, you know, act of decolonization. Um, and and then has seen um, all of its countries kind of lag behind as the northern states had such spectacular growth between the 40s and the 70s. And so part of their argument for a welfare state at the level of the globe is to correct class inequality on the largest possible scale.
0: So... Um an interesting point you raise and this is something i hadn't seen elsewhere yeah i'm thinking of uh, kwame nkrumah yep. um his political writings in most of the biographies that were written about him which i'm thinking of like basil davidsons black sure. star they they just completely write off his later stage political writings mm-hmm. you actually seem to to me seem to be suggesting there are ideas worth resurrecting there or at least paying attention to and maybe sure. maybe reapproaching what what works there so I, I would say, I mean,
1: I'm most interested in the sense in, in what he promised his people um, and not what what he achieved, because I assume that all political elites, you know, including in the United States, say lots of things um, <laughs> and have bad reasons for doing them. But, you know, <laughs> what they say changes pretty drastically over history, because what people want changes pretty drastically over history. Um, and so it's quite interesting that Nkrumah participates in this welfareist ideology of the broad historical moment in which decolonization takes place and makes so much room um, in some of these legendary speeches he gives for, um, for equality. Now, he also, um, you know, wrote this famous book, which I think um, is hard, harder to dismiss um called neocolonialism. And, you know, you can argue, I think, fairly that the diagnoses that he and others have made about the continuation of form informal empire in the world um, are kind of pretexts for misrule at home or excuses for failure to, you know, do a good job um building these new countries. But lots of analysts are are have, you know, taken a second look at notions like neocolonialism because they think that at a minimum, we have to account why, um, how decolonization could in a sense be so self-serving for the West. The West had spent hundreds of years, not just ruling, but, um, you know, ruling um, the world and expropriating lots of its... Um, you know, good setting up. Um, you know what historians call concessionary imperialism, where lots of corporations got to maintain their extraction contracts after decolonization, um, and as soon as they left, um, inequality on the world stage began to get worse, and uh, this this was no doubt a source of. Of, of understandable rage on the part of post-colonial leaders who said there's a fix in uh, and wanted to figure out how to confront it. Um, now, the interesting thing is we're going to talk about our own time momentarily and and this this syndrome that I and lots of other people call neoliberalism. But since the 70s, global inequality has, has decreased. Um, and so it's quite important to understand that, um, that from the 1940s through the 1970s, Nkrumah and others were confronting this real phenomenon that the West was, in a sense, lifting off while the rest was stagnating. Um, wh- whereas in, in our time, um, for all the massive growth and inequality within nations, um, it seems as if global inequality is in decline. Um, and so maybe there's less cause for the kind of fiery rhetoric that some of the post-colonial leaders offered with respect to the you know acceleration of global inequality.
0: Fascinating. Um, your fifth chapter, and this is where you you suddenly start to sh- see a sh- like the shift. Especially in terms of the third world, away from sort of welfareist ideologies and towards something else, and it comes out of this rhetoric of basic needs. And tell us a little bit more about that. So, um,
1: so the, once I've recorded the, you know, the 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 fervency of the commitment of the global south to equality, both at the level of the nation as a, and as a global project, I look in in the following two chapters at how how the, the world responded. And and basically my argument is this is a pivotal moment because where everyone in the world had adopted equality as a goal, in the 1970s, slowly they began to drop that commitment. Um, and maybe nowhere was that more vivid than in development discourse, um, how to improve the, the lot of the Global South. So the Global South's own proposal was to make each the the nations of the world more equal. And the the development community, um, as well as significant American politicians um, and NGOs responded by saying, what matters is not international inequality, but global poverty. We think that global poverty is kind of, you know, something that people have always cared about. But actually, um, it surges in prominence in the 1970s. And it's really through this rhetoric of basic needs. Basically, people look out at the world and say, actually, some post-colonial economies are growing pretty substantially, even though the gap between North and South is is also increasing. What's not happening is... Um, the the that the poor of the world are getting better off, and so some development economics um, uh, currents uh, are really suddenly emphasized in the 1970s, and this is especially at the World Bank um, that development ought to be about the poor, not about the poor states and the remedy of inequality, but about the poor individuals whom poor states aren't helping. Um, And so um, we begin to see forms of development um, assistance that bypass states, that focus less on launching states so they can have sustained growth and more on um, poverty programs. Now, this, of course, is the moment a decade after the war on poverty in the United States. And you could interpret this as a kind of extension of the war on poverty to the globe. Um, And of course, that's noble, and we still pursue um, anti-poverty. It's really the core of development, um, economics, and projects to this day. What I worry about is that this whole thing got started, in a sense, just at the moment, and maybe because the global South asked not for anti-poverty, but for more equality. Um, and so what I try to show is that lots of actors um, are responding directly to the global South and in a sense handing them a consolation prize. They say, you asked for more global equality, but instead we th- what we think you need is is remedies for continuing poverty
0: and there's a kind of philosophical shift that comes with this too right and this is what you you break down in the sixth chapter in the way that people understand equality and subsistence correct i i i give a kind of mirroring picture
1: uh in that Mm -hmm. chapter of the birth of what we call global justice which is a very widespread philosophical project in uh in, in especially North Atlantic universities, and I just show that the inventors of 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 the of the philosophical enterprise of thinking about the world as a, a space of distribution, which is pretty new, um, are responding to these debates I've reconstructed in the book. So w- one of the you know thinkers at issue there says the NIO is right, and we ought to care. Not just about welfare at the level of the state, but welfare at the level of the world. And he explicitly argues for more equality on the world stage. Um, But then, once the global South is given this consolation prize of anti poverty, you find um, other philosophers saying that that's what matters. Um, And so, what I want to do is like restore philosophy to our world and show that. Um, that these thinkers are often kind of translating, um, the big ethical decisions that everyone else is making in terms of policy into high theory. Um, and so that's a chapter that's not going to be for everyone, but, um, for those who are interested in philosophy, it shows that this, this shift away from a, a welfarist commitment to equality towards, um, a concern with sufficient provision or just subsistence um, of for the very worst off happens also in theory.
0: So this brings us then up to this sort of neoliberal moment and the intersection of human rights and the sort of explosion interest in human rights issues in the 1970s. And what effect does this have on the human rights movement?
1: So there really isn't a human rights movement prior to the 70s. Um, and so in a sense, the the human rights movement is getting in, invented in this crucible where the world is turning away um, both nationally and, and globally from um, a concern with equality towards um, um, a, a concern with um, poverty. And I basically try to show that th- the whole idea of what a human rights movement is got defined by that shift. That's really the center, central aspiration of the book. So Mm. it's not that there hadn't been ideas of rights before. As I mentioned, economic and social rights in particular go all the way back to the French Revolution. And at the time of the welfare state, there had been a universal declaration of human rights that um, favored economic and social rights and fit with the... The 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 welfare states, um, like assumption of this twin burden, um, getting people what they need, but also making citizens more equal. Um, but the Universal Declaration only became famous in the seventies when you have new movements like Amnesty International, um, that in a sense create the whole idea of what a human rights movement is and what i try to show is that many of these new movements have nothing to say about distribution um so they they in a sense forget about the second half of the universal declaration um even as they're reviving it um and you know that the the more broadly the the invention of the human rights politics um, is about putting socialism on trial because of course you know the most famous venue for human rights activism is in eastern Europe um, where dissidents who had wanted to save Marxism a decade before are embracing human rights and getting a big global audience um, and and not talking much about distribution or fairness but, I, I also show that there were some other currents in human rights. They're not just amongst philosophers, but in general, there were those who, um, who argued that human rights should be about the promotion of um, economic and social rights. But they, in a sense, forgot that that had been one part of the agenda of the egalitarian welfare state. And so ultimately, I'm, I'm trying to solve this puzzle. How is it that we have this big ascendancy of human rights in our time at the same moment that the egalitarian impulse of the welfare state is being left behind? And so I look at that relationship in lots of different places and at different moments in order to work out um, my answer. But to summarize, I basically say that these two Um, phenomena kind of end up coexisting without working together you might think of it in the following way the new development priorities but economic and social rights as pursued within um, advocacy circles too are working to build a floor of protection Um, no person should lack the most basic decencies of life and Human rights becomes one language for insisting on on that point. Meanwhile, we get a new set of policies and actors driving those policies that we can call neoliberal that wants to obliterate any ceiling on distributional uh, inequality. And so if you like, you have one group of people working really hard to build a floor um, while another group of people and powerful states like the United States are working really hard to destroy the ceiling that had been built because of the centrality of equality to, um, to the, the welfare state. Um, and so um, it's not that these two groups of people were working together, but they could get along. They could kind of mm-hmm. engage in parallel play, as we say, of children, who were kind of working alongside each other without cooperating with each other.
0: It's interesting. You point out at one point that um, even as all this explosion of human rights interest is going on, domestic social safety nets are basically being ripped and then scattered to the winds. Um, And one of the striking things I've just seen from my own research is that you have all these anti-apartheid labor union activists in the United States in the seventies and eighties, and at least to me, so much of what they say feels like a veiled criticism of what's happening back in the United States. You know, all these jobs are going to move to South Africa or this could happen here. You know, this this sort of erasure of all of labor's rights. Are these two sort of connected? You know, they lose one then they start to look abroad. Yeah, I, I love that point. I mean, I and and surely it's very, very
1: complicated. Um because the, the amazing thing is that lots of people who begin talking about human rights um, have spent, spent their lives beforehand as social democrats and often ones who are facing strict limits at home. And in a sense, we can argue that um, they, they, they transfer some of their interest abroad. Now, that's not to say that they just give up their, their redistributive goals. Um, you know, in who they vote for or what what other activities they can undertake, um, but they often um, undertake it, uh, international projects that are are just not focused on the distributional side of their politics, or just leave it out, um, or if it if they do intersect, are are focused just on like the most basic entitlements rather than any egalitarian imperative so you might say that you know we're at on the domain of advocacy and mobilization we're seeing a big shift in most places in the post-war period the central ngos if you like including for um you know f- at the time of the universal declaration were trade unions um and they were focused if you like on domestic social justice um Now that doesn't mean they were perfect because they were mostly for males and they were highly racialized and so forth. Um, But the big difference is after the seventies, the prestige activism um, tends um, not to just be um, international, but focused on kind of naming and shaming and not on, um, you know, um, fair social policy um, as a whole. So this is a shift i think we we haven't fully narrated you know in all the detail that would be required and you're you're citing a fascinating example of how of how that
0: story might look mm. something to think about for me for later then um i just wanted to try to end this by wondering you know you leave us with this epilog of croesus you know wealthiest man in the world is, is there any place in the framework of human rights to try to to address this distributive problem, or is it just so concerned with problems at the edge that it can't really focus at the center? Or does it need an entirely new framework to do that so I mean that's the debate that
1: has been you know
0: burgeoning for a
1: few years and 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 you know a lot of the responses to this book are are precisely on that question um, so you know it sort of depends what you think a human rights movement is. Um, I myself think, you know, human rights are just some words we use to, to pick out some things that we care about. And we can change what we care about. You know, we can make it narrower or broader, we can make it more inclusive, less inclusive. Um, I would have no problem um, if, if someone said, you know, well, we'll just take the universal declaration or current human rights movements and just tack on a new right to equality, um, and see what they can do with it. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, less than changes in, um, let's say some document or what the law says, we need to think more seriously about what kinds of advocacy and mobilization, um, kind of uh, d- d- has had some effect on egalitarian outcomes. So again, if we look back, we find that um, you know the, the crucial partisans of equality were trade unions and socialist parties, um, and we really have neither one. And so if we're actually asking what would it take for human rights movements to play that role, we may be asking the wrong question. Because we're, we're really asking them to, you know, play a role um, that they can't. Um, or if they could, they might be so unrecognizable that we could just as easily call them something else, like trade unions and socialist parties. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, most productive to sort of think not about what human rights movements can do, but what we need to do to create circumstances, whether intellectual ones or mobilizational ones that are more propitious for egalitarian outcomes than we've seen
0: lately. Excellent. Uh, my final question to you, and I know this book has just come out this year, what are you thinking of working on next? I've
1: actually shifted away. I, I, I sort of uh, feel like I've said my piece about where human rights came from. Um mm-hmm but and and so I'm going to write a book about war and how um there's been a campaign in the last hundred years to make it more humanely fought um but that the kind of un you know the 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 risk that we may have incurred along the way is that humane war is harder to contain in time and space, so. You know, it's it's both true that for all its excesses, the war on terror uh, is the most humane war ever fought by any state in history. And it's also true that it's threatening to be endless um, in time and without any strict boundaries in space. Um, and so I'm trying to investigate how we might figure out um, how to re-institutionalize some controls on war so that it's not just like, um, a forever activity that's more like global policing that the United States conducts. Um, many of us think that, you know, policing locally, you know, has lots of problems with it, but, you know, there has to be some policing, but are much more skeptical of the idea that one country should be, in the business of policing the globe and the fact that it's doing so more humanely than any army has ever fought before may not be good enough um
0: if the end itself is is illegitimate mm. that'll be i'll look forward to reading that i think that's a that's a fascinating line of argument to pursue thank you for taking the time to speak with us i today.
1: really appreciate the the attention and
0: and uh, hope to to talk again thank you so much